Miracy. So having those complementary skill sets doesn't put you in that place where you're really conflicting with one another so much as you have your own built-in mastermind group. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the positional power they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy work environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. I'm thrilled today to welcome Mitch Joel, a multi-decade entrepreneur, writer, and keynote speaker. Mitch has been a leader in the technology and media industries for nearly 25 years, including long tenure as president of a digital marketing company, which was sold in 2014 and is still operating today as part of WPP, a global marketing and communications holding company. Mitch has been blogging since 2003 and podcasting since 2006, so he definitely brings a unique perspective. And last year, Mitch launched a new organization, Thinkers One, a digital service that provides short-form video content from thought leaders. His own thought leadership has extended to writing numerous articles, business columns, and two books. In this episode, Mitch reflects on what it's been like to lead in an industry from its infancy to its adulthood, the world of digital media. Besides Mitch's own lessons learned, we'll talk about adapting to change, recognizing one's privilege, and the importance of having real relationships. Welcome to the show, Mitch. I can see we're in for a fascinating conversation today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Sharon. That's great. So uh, let's start a little bit with uh, history. What's your leadership journey been like as part of the evolution of the digital industry since the late 90s? The journey is one that is chaotic and fun uh, all at the same time. I started off as a professional music journalist, but this came at a time where I was already privileged to have things like brand new home computers. So mid 80s, like really early days of that. And then eventually what was the very early days of the internet. I did vacillate between my love of music and the music business and just watching all this emerging technology. So I went from writing for print magazines in a pre-digital world to actually publishing some magazines in the pre-internet world. And, and so that we can frame what the internet was at the time, the innovation at the time was hyperlinks. The fact that you could click a link and go to another webpage, because for those who don't remember, there was a time when you had to go into the address bar and type in the actual massive URL for any webpage. There weren't really websites even at that point. I met people who were running at the time what was a meta search engine. For those who don't remember that point, it was a lot of search engines, not a lot of great results. And so these meta search engines came in, would crawl all the search engines to create a better search result pre-Google. Yeah. And we built out a lot of the models that currently exist in terms of pay-per-click and sponsorship and online advertising and all that stuff. So very much 
there at that point, still writing freelance music articles and reviews and interviewing artists and things like that. Uh, From there, I went through the whole dot-com boom, bust, and echo and stuck around for a bit, then got looped into helping with some mobile content company, which again, we say mobile content now as if it's normal because we all have smartphones. But back then, you couldn't even send a text message to somebody unless they were on the same carrier as you were. So that's how early that was. So you're kind of catching a theme now of how early I typically am versus where I should be. Um, (laughs) Did a very small stint in a PR agency that led me to going back to the music business and starting a record label. But at the same time, I had met a couple of people who were just starting out in the digital media world, and I felt more at home there. So now we're in about 2002, and we are at this company called Twist Image, and we were four business partners. And again, thinking about the world of digital, blogging was just coming in, and I thought, what a great way for me to help promote the business and the brand because I could speak freely about how digital is going to disrupt everything. So I started this blog called Six Pixels of Separation, which was the Twist Image blog. was writing every day, realized I should probably take a break. So I started with this brand new technology at the time in 2005 or six called podcasting. And so I started the Six Pixels of Separation podcast there every Sunday, which hasn't stopped since then. I've continued that on every single Sunday to this moment. That led to people wanting me to write for their publications. It led to speaking events. It led to book deals. I wrote two books. One's called Six Pixels of Separation. One is called Control-Alt-Delete. Built that agency up into a multi-office, decent-sized, service-based agency. Sold it to one of the largest holding companies, WPP, about nine years ago. Exited the business about four or five years ago. Wound up here with one of my business partners, Aubrey Rosenhack. And then we happened on a business idea called Thinkers One that we launched about six months ago. And Thinkers One is a place where companies can buy bite-sized and personalized thought leadership from some of the best thought leaders in the world. So it's the ability to take people like me who are typically on big stages and bring them into your everyday meetings. The way we do that is it's all digital. You can do through e-commerce. And the way it works is that it's a bit shorter than it would be if it were a keynote or a consulting gig. And it's video-based. So we're very excited about that project. But at the same time, I continue podcasting and having fun. This is great. And I actually had a chance to look at Thinkers One. It's fascinating. And I imagine it's going to be a big hit. Often it's great if we can have guests sort of describe, what's your current leadership philosophy or approach? And I wonder if there's a way you might describe that for us. If I think about what really made us successful, at the agency is, yes, you have to have the right pricing and the right clients and do great work. And it's all about the people. But we were four very different business partners that made it together to the point where we're still best of friends and love and care for each other. And one of them is still my business partner to this day. But the fact that we managed to survive and outlive almost everybody who even acquired us, let alone the clients at the time, you go to an agency review meeting, and we were there longer than the other people at the other side of the table, literally was how it was, speaks to that leadership philosophy, which is you need to be able to work with people who have a tremendous amount of skill in the areas that you are not all that skilled in, one side of it. The second side of it is why I think we arrived at the destination we did as four very different, unique individuals is we always believed in the knives out philosophy. It's us against the world, so we're knives out. But the minute something goes wrong, it's usually knives in. Whose problem was that? Who, did, you know, who makes that? And we always said, we are never going to be knives in. 
and that we're going to deal with it, support one another and help one another get through it. I think the true philosophy of how I think about leadership is embodied in the success we really had as four equal partners and our ability to go through every phase from nothing to acquisition to then being part of a much larger organization and we become operational again to exiting to still having that type of relationship. A lot of entrepreneurs that I see don't want to make that leap. And it's an issue we have in life. We have a 50 plus percent divorce rate because people don't want to be open and talk about their deficiencies and they want to mask it and hide it and pass blame and do all these things when in reality, it's a very tough conversation to have with yourself and then to find the right people that do this because our intuition is to find those that are very complementary to us. And the real win is in finding people that are actually quite different from you. So I think that's a great place for us to probe a little more. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what some of those differences were and, and a challenge or two that came up and how you all sorted it out. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy. I, I mean, because that never happened because everything that I do, they didn't like to do and everything that they do, I didn't want to do. So you have one person who's very good at finance and operations, but one person that was very good on the product, the creativity, the technology integration. You had one person who was very good at running organizations, a CEO type. And then you had me, who was more of a salesperson and then also having the ability to communicate and work together. And so when you go to pitch, you not only have a very supportive team that have a very specific skill set, but you have a very diversified leadership. And then underneath us, we also took that philosophy and passed it down where we built a very powerful management team that could run the business if any one of us got hit by a bus. So when you talk about what were some of the things and conflicts and how to, it really wasn't, it was more like an individual was challenged. Let's say I was challenged, a client came back, was unhappy, was thinking about moving the business elsewhere. It wasn't a big fight. It was a conversation of, so how do we look at that from a financial operations point of view? How do we see that as a leadership point of view? Should the CEO be brought in? How do we see this from a product point of view? Or how do we correct what we maybe did wrong as a, as a team? Yeah. So having those complementary skill sets doesn't put you in that place where you're really conflicting with one another so much as you have your own built-in mastermind group, your own summit of people who have very diverse backgrounds and experiences, and that might be able to add some color to the challenges you're facing. Yeah. I like the mastermind comparison, and I don't think most executives really stop to think about their leadership teams as a mastermind group, but certainly from the mastermind groups I've been in, that's where the richness comes and it. And it's easy to be deeply respectful of people in your mastermind group. Sometimes it slips a little bit in the day-to-day fray of running a business, but you guys figured out how not to do that somehow. So what do you think a couple of the keys were to what enabled you guys to handle it so well? I'm just thinking about our listeners here and somebody out there is going, oh, I love the idea of treating that my leadership team as a mastermind. What, what do we need to learn or do or change? to do that well. You have to be vulnerable. You have to move the ego to the side. You have to have a very clear path for what you're trying to accomplish. We had a team in place. I mean, the four of us, let's put aside the fact that the management team was also very, very close with us and that was a lot more people. But this idea that we could really have a set vision. So if somebody came in and said, you know, client XYZ is now offering us all of their TV advertising. I know that my creative slash tech business partner would have been, let's grab it. My CEO would have been, we're sticking to digital. 
We're sticking to digital because it makes us more specific. We're sticking to digital because it's a growing niche. And from a financial standpoint, we're going to stick to digital because the multiple should we ever decide to sell is going to be a lot bigger than if we're a traditional agency. So it was a different perspective that I don't think I would have taken as a salesperson. I would have been, let's just take the money and grow the business. So when you are aligned on that path, it makes it a lot easier. If I think about the acquisition process, it wasn't all of us dying to sell a business. This business was doing very well. We were very healthy and having a great time with it. We didn't actually even think of selling it until a person who we were talking about how to grow business development said, have you considered selling this business? And when we went around the horn and said, well, let's just say yes, what would be the number? It was even surprising because we're all so different to see that we were all fairly aligned on what the number might be. When this person said, I think I can get you that number, we said, well, that might be interesting because suddenly you're able to scale and accomplish all these dreams and ideas you have while taking the equity off the table and just doing the work. And that felt really exciting at the time. It felt like we were providing not just for ourselves a way to leave a business, but actually for the team to really expand their horizons. And because of that vision, we were able to absolve ourselves of a lot of the challenges because we agreed. We are going to be this type of business, this type of size. We're going down this path. Micromanaging was not the key to the success here. I'm glad you raised the point about micromanagement. This is something that a lot of leaders, as they're growing in their leadership, struggle with. But as you expanded and grew the business, did this ever become an issue for any of you? Or we were all just so ego-free and able to have the dialogues that it didn't really come up? No, I can think of instances where, as an example, my personal brand is growing because I'm out there speaking and writing and present. And my CEO, Mark, at the time would say, it's like I'm holding on to your ankles and I've got the entire agency on the other thing. I'm trying to pull you both so that you're closer to what you're saying, to what we're doing. And then you start having conversations about what do we do to bring the thinking and the thought leadership to the actual work? And then you start going in the opposite direction and thinking, what if we don't? What if we just let the eagle soar with how it's going to think and how the world's changing? The business will eventually find its path and find its way. And even if the business diverges, so it's in those conversations of how do you bring it closer together or how do you keep it completely apart where you find interesting ideas? I remember being very decisive on wanting to write a book. And I remember one of my business partners being very, is now the right time? Now it's a bet that paid off, but they could have been very correct. And it could have been a big waste of time and a heap of nothing. And that leads to the other point, which is, you know, there's a lot of privilege and luck that people don't want to link to. People like to connect it by saying, well, yeah, when you work hard, you get lucky. I'm not even so sure that's true anymore. I think you can do everything right and not have the waves of the economy or where you're at in the world being aligned with where you're at. I was in the music business. I could point to a thousand bands that had incredible albums with perfect music, with the best producer and the best management, the best record company. The album went absolutely nowhere. It did not hit the moment of culture the way it should have. And media and running a service-based industry is very similar. You could just be out of step with your products, your services, how you're talking about it, how you're thinking about it, and it could not work. So I'm very cautious of saying, it's great that we had four partners. It's amazing that we had a large management team and great people. 
but there was also another co-pilot there and that's nothing we can control, which is called luck. Yeah. And the world around us doing what it does, which I think leads to something that I'd love to hear you talk about. When you think about how the digital media world has really become, it's grown tremendously and now is ubiquitous, really. How do you think that changes or affects your perspective on leadership? Well, I like being right and wrong at the same time. Talking about at the time that online advertising would surpass other media platforms was heresy back then. I was right. But I also talked about a thousand flowers blossoming in a world right now that is quite monopolistic, that looks very much like traditional media. I was very wrong about that. I did not see that coming. So when I think about it in relationship to leadership, it's the old F. Scott Fitzgerald concept of can you hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function? So now think about that in conjunction with remote work, physical work, hybrid work. Think about it in relation to this pandemic that we just went through. Businesses are saying, are things going to go back to the way they were? Are they forever changed? And the answer to that is, yeah. And you should probably create business models in the world where what if things do forever change or what if they go back? And if your business models can't satiate that, you're not doing a great job as a leader. But I think that we do live in a world where we're seeing this exponential motion and movement, whether it's in the economy, whether it's in technological advances, whether it's in how we see businesses, whether it's how we see employment or leadership. And it's very hard for a human brain to operate in a flux of exponential change. So we will have to watch as the wave crashes over us again and again, and then we will sort it out. And my ability to truly make these quantifiable and qualifiable and intelligent decisions might be cobbled by the fact that the change is so fast and pounding. Yeah, I've been thinking myself, just as we've been through the last few months with the kind of explosion of popularity of generative AI and chat GPT, it reminds me very much of the mid to late 90s that, you know, you were talking about before. Are you seeing the similarities as well? Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, it's like totally game changing. The brand of my content for keynote speaking is I help leaders decode the future. That's the little line that I put, right? Because then I can tell people that I speak to audiences about decoding the future. Thinkers One helps your business decode the future. It works. So, you know, when things like ChatGPT came out, I wasn't the person sitting on the sidelines being skeptical. I was the person playing and tinkering. I love the word tinker, and I tinker with a lot of this technology. If you look at the adoption of a chat GPT in relation to other social platforms or other digital technologies, you're starting to see exponential growth. It's growing at a speed of which we we could never have understood it. So whether it's writing an article, whether it's promoting it in social, whether it's creating a podcast, whether it's doing things like we're doing here with this amazing piece of software called Riverside, that AI has become my working buddy in everything that I use it for brainstorming. I use it for junior copy editing. I use it for voice assistant. I use it across the board in everything that I do. And with each passing day, I find myself adding in either other forms of generative AI technology and or evolving my usage of it. It's not lost on me that I have to step back and say, when was the last time that happened? And I can look to some of the bigger things like email or the web browser or e-com or the iPhone. So it's not surprising to me because I've seen this story so many times since 1985. What's surprising to me is the scale and usage of it across so many things for me. That's the one that's very different than 
you know, that's almost like when you went from desktop to laptop to smartphone. It's just that type of cultural shift where you see it permeate literally everything. It's an interesting thing being of the age. I think we must be just about the same age based on the couple things you mentioned earlier. And I can think over my professional life as well. Like when I went to business school, we did not have email. Imagine going to business school with no email now. I can't even imagine. And the current students can't imagine it. Yeah, you know, the stories are are constant because then you start getting into back in my day. So back in my day, (laughs) Sharon, I was writing articles about bands. So you tell me, what year was Motley Crue's debut? And how do you spell the guitar player's last name? Now, that's an easy one right now. You just type Motley Crue into your browser and you have results. I would have to call the record company. The record company would have to call someone. And then they would hopefully call me back. And you're just waiting to do this article. What happened eventually, we got fax machines and it was crazy. I was one of the first people to have a fax machine in my house. The fact that I had that would freak out these labels. They would fax me the actual bio. I would then take that bio and file it. So I had filing cabinets. I had books, encyclopedias. I go to the library for other encyclopedia type books on bands. The process of writing a 250 word article was weeks to do. I think about word processing, modems, spell checker, and you think about things like Grammarly, and now think about generative AI. So I can also look at it compressed over time and literally see a complete revolution at each level of those technological advancements. So yeah, and to that, we will look at things like ChatGPT or even our email or even tools like Riverside that we're using now as being very, very basic in many years. It will seem like I can't believe that's what you'd use to do that. Right. That's the whole exponential thing where the changes happen so quickly that you even forgot that you were using tools that were somewhat antiquated in that short period of a time. I think the accelerated speed of everything in work clearly has been mind-boggling for a lot of people. And I think I would be really interested in how you think that that affects the way leaders need to operate today. Everything's happening so much faster and we are at this uncertain time. I'll go back to March, April, 2020. If your business was scrambling to open up a Zoom account or figure out Microsoft Teams, it was amplified to you. You could hear it, how non-digital first you actually were. So what I care about is amplification. What is your ability to look at the digital world we live in, the tools that exist for you to connect in more powerful ways to your customers and your partners? And how far behind are you on that scale, that amplification? And then the second part that I care a lot about is the distribution model. So again, if I go back pre-COVID, you'd hear many people say, oh, we have an older demographic. They're not connected. Or, you know, we speak to younger people and they're not as connected. Well, the pandemic really opened that that door. If you were, you know, I don't know if you're fortunate or unfortunate, if you had online learning, but suddenly everybody from kindergarten up was now digitally enabled in Google Classroom and all that sort of stuff. And then if you had elderly parents grandparents, you're suddenly sliding iPads under their door. And now not only are they using FaceTime to speak to the kids, but now they're doing online ordering. They're doing their online banking. Those habits fundamentally shifted. So the distribution model of having a much larger discernible market, whether you're in B2B, B2C, small, medium, and large, or solopreneur, your massive organization is profound. So the conversation I'm interested in having is, were you listening? How digitally first are you now in a world that has transcended in a world where the distribution model is now much larger than it ever was? Your discernible market grew exponentially as well. That's a powerful conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that and looking forward, what do you anticipate leaders needing to do differently over the next five to 10 years? I don't know if it's different, only because one of the things I talk about are everyone's got their four or five R's and S's. I have my three S's, which is pandemic hit. We went into survival mode. Once we realized it was going to be a bit more than two weeks to flatten that curve, we went into sustain mode. How are we going to sustain this? I would argue we're still in sustained mode where you want to be optimally. And I don't think we recognize we were there pre-pandemic is strive where you know the economy is raging, consumer habits are raging, everything's looking great, still very, very lumpy. So I think we're still in that sustained mode. It's hard for me to push leaders to think, what do you do? Because in sustained mode, it's hard to know you're in sustained mode. Right now, leaders are dealing with a lot of macro forces that are well beyond their control. That doesn't mean they should remain still or panicked or do nothing. I think they have very challenging choices to make that are sometimes at the industry level, sometimes at the global macroeconomic level. We've got a war in the Ukraine. We've got climate crisis. I can list off all the terrible things going on in the world right now, but they are real things that are truly impacting our day-to-day work and how we operate much more connected world. And I think the real job of the leaders are to figure out how to make these moments matter. How do we take these moments and make them more real? Because if everybody is working remotely, if everybody is hybrid, if people are hesitant to come and physically be there, we have to look in the mirror and think about what will make them show up. I think one of the main things that will make people show up, if you want to think about leadership going forward, is you need to stop being a leader and start being a much better coach, much better mentor, much better friend. That's what's going to move everything forward. People are not showing up. They're disengaged and they're disenfranchised because it's unclear sometimes what their role is. And some of this is completely on the employees because they're sitting at home and not willing to come in. But these leaders have to really give people a reason here. And the reason has to matter. And one of the ways in which we materialize that is by being a great coach. And so if you want people back into the office, you're trying to think of all these other ways in which you can bring them back to the office. Maybe you should look in the mirror and ask yourself, would you want to come to the office to hang out with you? That's a pretty good place to start. It is a great place to start. With your new venture, Thinkers One, being a platform for really spreading thought leadership, how do you see its potential in terms of leading the leaders, I guess, so to speak? Look, we are in a world where the conversation that leaders are having is we got to do things that work in person. We got to do things that work in a hybrid situation. We got to do things that work virtually. What I think makes Thinkers One exceptionally unique is that it works in every scenario. It works because we have options of asynchronous and synchronous to hang out with us for 15 minutes and take any questions we might have about where the world's going. That works whether we're physically here, it's hybrid or virtual, it works across the board. So, one is, I think that it's very rare to come across a tool that can engage your audience across the means. I think it's very rare to come across a platform like Thinkers One where you can get content that's actually related to the challenges you're facing. It doesn't have to be me. There's a hundred plus brilliant thinkers from all different types of industries and levels that can deal with you in terms of how we can connect better as leaders to how we could sell more, to how we can think differently, to how we can unlock potential to whatever it might be. So what's interesting about it from that perspective is I can build that culture when I am in such a different, you know, fragmented workforce by actually bringing in things that deal with the actual challenge. The other aspect of it is it happens within the timeframe of the things you're already doing. 
Yeah. And so I think those are some of the few reasons. Obviously, I could tell you a million why I created this platform. But I really do think that people who are typically the ones you see on the stage at your customer summit every year or the ones you pay to go to the industry event to see making that type of brain available to everyday meetings and lunch and lunch. And by the way, even gifts for clients. It's an amazing way in which you can show your clients that you're really thinking about them and know the challenges they're facing. To me, makes it very exciting that I could take these people and make them be able to help startups, nonprofits, smaller businesses, medium-sized businesses, because you know the concession is you're getting them for less time so you're paying a little bit less than typically you would have to pay to access these people. Yeah. And so I'm going to just shift back a little bit as we start to wrap up. So the title of this podcast is To Lead is Human. And the reason that I wanted to start it is very much connected to the meaning of that phrase to me. But I'd love to ask you, what does it mean to you? If not human, what? One of the pillars of digital that made me somewhat anachromatic to my peers is I took to it like a fish to water because I realized that suddenly this isn't about a business speaking to a team or a business speaking to their customer base. It's about real people having real interactions. When I wrote my blog posts for the first time, it wasn't a press release. It was the opposite of a press release. It was a conversation. It was a catalyst to engage with real people. And the digital channels over the years have provided me with myriad of places and moments. And some of my best friends are people that I met in the virtual world. I think what we've seen in the backlash to big tech and tech companies and even the conversations around artificial intelligence and what we're going to do isn't just about governments regulating. What people are ultimately saying is, I don't want to lose my humanity. I want to be in control of me of my relationships, of my connections. So to me, the spirit of what I loved most about the technology and and professionally benefited from always, always attached itself to that human aspect of it, for sure. Are there particular aspects of your own humanity that you had to learn how to embrace as you went through these leadership experiences? If you don't change, it's it's problematic. I, I think back to a book that I love by Tom Peters called Reimagine. And he has a quote in there by retired General Eric Shinseki. And the general says, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. <laughs> and I let that sink in. And I use it often, even in my presentations, this idea that change is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for everybody, but change is also inevitable. It's the reason I'm gainfully employed to this day. People bring me in because they are probably some way resistant of, of the change that's happening. We like routine. We like our things where they are, and we forget about that. And it is, oh, it's a ridiculous analogy. It's absolutely not. Because no. if you're someone's like, I love change. I love, I love unknowing. Yeah, okay, so go and park somewhere, and then I'm going to move your car in the airport. When you come back, good luck finding it. You love change. You love not knowing, right? You love yeah. that. We're not. We actually like systems. We like organization. We like thinking. We have control of where things are going. And when you can remove yourself a little bit from that, you start getting into some very human ideas, runs around mindfulness, ones that are attached to even Buddhism that go back long before we had electrical outlets, let alone internet connectivity. And you can start really seeing, you know, that that human side of it. Do you believe that there is a move in broader leadership thinking towards some of these older practices like deeper mindfulness, being more attuned to the needs of other people, 
emphasizing empathetic connection, uh, other kind of what we would historically call these soft skills? The answer is we know that the soft skills are the hard skills, to steal another turn of phrase from Tom Peters. What I see is more of the trends. So I would say, yeah, of course, Sharon, we've seen this in all the great books about empathy and the human leader and the principle-centered leader and, and, and. Yet, we still have quarterly earnings. We still have fraud. We still have companies not doing what they should be doing in terms of diversity and equity and inclusion, in terms of the climate, in terms of nurturing teams, in terms of not just letting go 10,000 people because it's going to help their stock pop a little bit for the next quarter when they're actually struggling with sales or business development or innovation or whatever it might be. Are there companies who do this and that are quote unquote winning? There is no doubt. Is it embedded in the culture and overtaking what we see as a capitalist, economically driven system? I don't see it. Yeah. So what would you say to your younger self when you were first beginning to lead other people? What did you not know then that you now know that you really wish you could have known back then? I mean, if I told you the domains that I owned in a world before there was anything like online gambling in a world where eBay didn't exist. I mean, if I just chose any one of those business models and said, let me run with that, it would have been a, a, a very different life for me. So easy to live with the regrets and the things that we saw that we didn't act on. Easy. Yeah. Harder is to look back and really think that, was it worth it? Is the work that I did worth it? Not even in terms of how it impacted the economy or your financial outcome. When we talk about wealth and success, what are we talking about? We're talking about maybe there's a financial aspect to it, but it's your physical health, it's your relationships, it's your spiritual, it's your contribution. It's how you bring the world really together. So what would I say to that person? I'd probably just give them a thumbs up and say, just keep going. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. It's gonna Because again, from a, a ton of privilege that I have no control over, from the genetic lottery of birth to being born, you know, a white male with all of my limbs and all of my neurodiversity as it is. And I mean, I, my multilingual and having the privilege of being able to afford to go to education. Da, da, I mean, you know, there's just a lot of stuff there that was working my favor at the time I was born and the moment I went into the work. I mean, it's a bit overwhelming to think about it. So the answer for me, at least, would be just keep going. Yeah. So, and then to wrap up today, Mitch, what's the piece of advice you would share with our listeners who want to become more effective as leaders and, and they want to build these workplaces where everyone can be more fully human, but maybe they're a little nervous about how to do it? Show up, look people in the eye. Think about the one person right now you would love to just grab a coffee with and talk about work and ask yourself, if I fast forward from that meeting five years, we did that meeting on Zoom, or we did that meeting in person at the coffee shop or in the boardroom, which meeting do you think you'll remember more? My guess is it'll be the coffee shop or the one you did in physical. And the Zoom one will just be like any other Zoom meeting because of the nature of that technology, which is very, very different. Show up, be present, make the connections count. The other aspect of that is you'll build real relationships that will not only hopefully help that individual succeed, but you as well. Thank you so much. A big thanks to Mitch Joel for our wide-ranging and super fascinating conversation today. I know, Mitch, people will want to find out more about you and your work. So where's the best place for them to go to learn more about you? They can go to thinkersone.com or sixpixels.com. And thanks for your time, Sharon. I appreciate you giving me this time to chat about this stuff. 
Well, I appreciate you joining me to think it through together. Looking forward to talking again in the future. Please stay with us for a moment, and I'll share some takeaways from my conversation with Mitch and coaching tips to help you uplevel your own leadership. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. What a fascinating conversation that was with Mitch. Out of the many takeaways, I'll highlight just a few, along with one practical tip for how you can enrich your leadership starting today. Mitch, like some of our previous guests, called out the importance of setting his ego aside to learn from others, especially those with fundamentally different perspectives. In fact, research reported by the Wharton School of Business describes this as a brain hack that helps improve executive decision-making. If you're interested in that article, look for a link in our show notes below. Mitch talked about having a knives-out attitude, never turning on folks inside your organization, and instead focusing all our energies on attacking outside the organization to competitors. Check out which way your organization's knives are pointed. When you listen, how much blaming or shaming do you notice? And what impact does that have on people speaking up freely in your organization? I will say, though, the concept that I find most powerful is how leadership teams can operate like a mastermind group. He's referring there to a specific set of engagement rules common to masterminds. If you haven't been part of one before, let me describe that briefly. Members agree to bring their real challenges and difficulties forward with all the warts and all their uncertainties and to trust each other enough to ask for help. Anyone in the group who has an experience or perspective that might be useful, brings it forward to help the speaker think through options and actions. They do not, however, give advice like what you should do is or if I were you, I would. In the best masterminds, there's little to no ego, competition, or need to be the smartest person in the room, so true thought partnership can take place. Here's the challenge I'd like to offer you. Observe your own executive team's interactions and evaluate them against these norms. Then identify one or two aspects that you'd like to introduce to your team and tell them why you want to do this. I guarantee you, better decisions will follow. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson and Andrew Chapman assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss upcoming episodes, do follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you learned something useful today, please take a minute and leave us a starred review. Even better, tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better for everyone. 
Thanks so much for joining me today, and we'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making Making It. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.